Appendix 2 of Home Education Series Volume 3 School Education This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Amy Bodkin, Navarre, Florida. Home Education Series Volume 3 School Education by Charlotte Mason Appendix 2 some specimens of examination work done in the parents review school in which the pupils are educated upon books and things class three in class three the range of age is from eleven or twelve to fifteen the subjects bible lessons and recitations poetry and bible passages english grammar french german and latin italian optional English, French, and Ancient History, Plutarch's Lives, Singing, French, English, and German Songs, Writing, Dictation, Drill, Drawing in Brush and Charcoal, Natural History, Botany, Physiology, Geography, Arithmetic, Geometry, and Reading. About 35 books are used. Time, three and a half hours a day, half an hour out of this time as before for drill and games. There is no preparation or homework in any of the classes. The reader will notice from the subjoined specimens that the papers are still written con amore, and show an intelligent grasp of the several subjects. Though there are errors in many of the papers, they are not often the mistakes of ignorance or stupidity nor are they those of a person who has never understood what he is writing about composition is never taught as a subject well-taught children compose as well-bred children behave by the light of nature it is probable that no considerable writer was ever taught the art of composition the same remark may be made about spelling excepting for an occasional inveterate case the habit of reading teaches spelling all the pupils of the Parents' Review School do not take all the subjects set in the programs of the several classes. Sometimes parents have the mistaken notion that the greater the number of subjects, the heavier the work, though in reality the contrary is the case, unless the hours of study are increased. Sometimes outside lessons in languages, music, etc., interfere sometimes health will not allow of more than an hour or two of work in the day the children in the practicing school do all the work set and their work compares satisfactorily with the rest though the classes have the disadvantage of changing teachers every week children in class three write the whole of their examination work question describe the founding of christ's kingdom what are the laws of his kingdom a. Aged 13. Christ came to found his kingdom. He preached the laws to his people. He taught them to pray for it. Thy kingdom come. And he told his chosen few to go and preach the gospel of the kingdom. He founded his kingdom in their hearts, and he reigned there. He will still found his kingdom in our hearts. He will come and reign as king. The kingdom was first founded by the Sea of Galilee. Follow me, said our Lord to Andrew, and from that moment the kingdom was founded in Andrew's heart. Then there were Peter, 
James, John, Philip, Nathaniel, and the kingdom grew. From that moment Christ never stopped his work for the kingdom, preaching and teaching, healing and comforting, proclaiming the laws of the kingdom. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. One jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law. Whosoever shall break one of these least commandments, and shall teach men so, the same shall be called the least in the kingdom. No commandment was to pass from the law, but there was a new commandment, a new law, and that was love. Love your enemies. The Pharisees could not understand it. Love your friends and hate your enemies was their law. But Jesus said, Bless them that curse you, and pray for them that despitefully use you. Give hoping for nothing in return. And whosoever shall smite thee on one cheek, turn to him the other also. Christ's law is the love which suffereth long, and is kind. Seeketh not her own, never faileth, hopeth all things, endureth all things, and now abideth faith, hope, and charity. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Question. Explain English funds. Consoles, two and three quarters percent, one hundred and thirteen. And give an account of the South Sea Bubble. Book studied, Arnold Forrester's History of England. B. Aged fourteen and a half. This means that when the South Sea Company first appeared, the government gave them one hundred and thirteen pounds on condition that the company should give two and three quarters percent, which means two pounds fifteen shillings on every one hundred pounds lent for a certain number of years. In the reign of George I, the money matters of the country were in a very bad state. The government was very much in debt, especially to those people who had purchased annuities, and had a right to receive a certain sum of money from the government every year as long as they lived. Sir Robert Walpole, who was then Prime Minister, was most anxious to pay off part of this debt. He heard of a company which had just been started called the South Sea Company, whose object was to trade in the South Seas. This was what Walpole wished for. He suggested to them that they should pay off the debt due to the people who had bought annuities, and in return the government would give them some privileges and charts which would be useful to them. This the company agreed to do, but instead of paying the people in money, they gave them what were called shares in the South Sea Company. These shares were supposed to be very valuable, and it was thought that the South Sea Company was really prosperous, and that those who had shares in it would have most enormous profit in the end. Thousands of people came to buy shares, and some of them were so anxious to get them that they spent enormous sums of money on these worthless pieces of paper. All was well for a time, but at last the people began to wish for their money instead of the shares, and claimed it loudly from the company. It was then that the bubble burst. It was discovered then that the company was quite unable to pay what was due, and that all this time they had been deluding the nation by promises and giving them shares, and that they had never been the rich and prosperous company they made themselves out to be. 
naturally the most dreadful distress prevailed everywhere and many were absolutely ruined so that the government had to help those who were most distressed at this point sir robert walpole came to the rescue he made the bank of england pay some of the debts and behaved with such cleverness that he saved the country almost from ruin question what do you know of the states general book studied mrs crichton's first history of france c aged twelve the states general met in may seventeen eighty nine the people had long wanted reforms and been talking about them and now on the fifth of may seventeen eighty nine the states general met again for the first time since sixteen fourteen if the nobles sat in one house and the people in another as was the custom they could never get the changes made so the people with their leader the marquis of mirabeau declared they would not leave the tennis court on which they were standing till it was agreed that they could sit together with the nobles when louis the sixteenth came down in state and told them they were to sit apart they said they would not leave their place except at the bayonet's point when he heard this he said very well leave them alone so they sat together question show fully how aristides acquired the title of the just why was it a strange title for a man in those days book studied plutarch's lives aristides d aged thirteen and a quarter aristides acquired the title of the just by his justice and because he never did anything unjust in order to become rich or powerful while many of the judges and chief men in athens took bribes he alone always refused to do so and he also never spent the public money on himself when after having defeated the persians at plataea the greek states decided to have a standing army it was aristides who was sent round to settle how much each town should contribute and he did this so fairly and well that all the greek states blessed and praised his arrangement it is said that aristides could not only resist the unjust claims of those whom he loved but also those of his enemies once when he was judging a quarrel between two men one of them remarked that the other had often injured aristides tell me not that was the reply of aristides but what he has done to thee for it is thy cause i am judging not my own another time when he had gone to law himself and when after having heard what he had to say his judges were going to pass sentence on his adversary without having heard him aristides rose and entreated his judges to hear what his enemy could say in his own defence in all that he did aristides was inflexibly just and many stories were told of his justice though he loved his country well he would never do anything wrong to gain for athens some advantage and in all he did his one aim was justice and his only ambition to be called the just he was so just and good that he was called the most just man in greece in the times in which aristides lived men used to care more to be called great rich or powerful than just 
Themistocles, the great rival of Aristides, used to do all he could to become the first man in Athens, and rich as well as powerful. He did not hesitate to take bribes, and all he did for the Athenians was done with a view to making himself the head of the people, and the first man in the state. He used often to do unjust as well as cruel things in order to get his own ends. It was the same with most other men who lived at this time. They preferred being rich, powerful, or great to being distinguished by the title of the just. Question. Describe a journey in northern Italy. Book studied. Geographical reader. Book 4. E. Aged 12. I am about to go for a tour round the northern part of Italy, and after I have taken a train to Savoy, which is about the southeast of France, I enter into Italy by the Cenis Pass, which is very lofty, about 7,000 feet above sea level. On arriving in Italy, I come into the province of Piedmont, which has three mountain torrents, or streams, running through it. These streams join at Turin, the capital of Piedmont, and form the Po River, which flows out on the east coast of France into the Gulf of Venice. On the banks of the three mountain streams are some Protestants by the name of Waldenses, who say they are followers of the disciples. But if you ask any outsider, they will say, Oh, the Waldenses are followers of a good man by the name of Waldo, who fled out of France in the twelfth century. We will now go and see Turin, and the first thing we say is, what a clean town! And so it certainly is, for it is quite the cleanest town in Italy, as the people have only to turn on the fountain taps to clean their paved streets. And after we have looked at Alessandria, where Napoleon gained his great victory, we leave Piedmont and follow up the River Po until we come to its next tributary, the River Ticino, which runs up north into the Lake Maggiore which is five to six miles wide and about sixty miles in length. This lake has four islands which are named after Count Borromeo and so-called the Borromean Islands, which are cultivated like gardens with terraces for resting places. Now let us go to Milan, which is so well known by its beautiful cathedral of white and black marble which have no less than four thousand sculptures of white marble with pillars of Egyptian granite. Milan is famous for silks and lace to provide for the numerous palaces. We will now go back to the next lake, Lake Como, which is surrounded by mountains and supposed to be the most beautiful of all lakes. At the south it goes out in a fork, and between the fork is a beautiful piece of land called Bellagio. The next lake we come to is the Garda, the largest of all the lakes, and then we go on to the smallest of lakes, called Lugano. We now, having visited all the lakes, take a look at Lodi, the famous cheese market in Italy, after which we visit Verona, where Pliny the naturalist was born. Also, Paul Veronese. Shakespeare lays the scene of his play Romeo and Juliet in Verona. The short time we have, we spend at Venice, the queen of the Italian cities, with its wonderful canals and marvelous cathedral of St. Mark's, also the dark, gloomy palace of the Doge. 
Question. How are the following seeds dispersed? Birch, pine, dandelion, balsam, broom. Give diagrams and observations. Book studied. Mrs. Brightwin's Glimpses into Plant Life. F. Aged 13. The seeds of the birch are very small, with two wings, one on each side, so that in a high wind numbers of them are blown onto high places, such as crevices on the face of a rock, or crevices on a church tower, or the tower of an old ruin. They are so light that they are carried a long way. The seeds of the pine are very small, and the veins in the seed are wriggly, so that the seed is curly, which makes it whirl rapidly in the air and the whirling motion carries it along a little way before it rests on the ground. It has two small wings. The seeds of the dandelion are large, with a kind of silky parachute attached, so that when they fall off they do not fall to the ground, but are carried a little way because the wind catches the under part of the parachute. The seed has a little hook at the top of it, which prevents it from being pulled out of the ground by the parachute after it is once in. The balsam seed case splits when the seeds are ripe and sends them flying in all directions, so they are far enough dispersed and need no wings or parachutes to help them. The broom seed case is a carpel more like that of the sweet pea. When the seeds are ripe, the two sides of the carpel split open and curl up like springs and send the seeds flying out so they are dispersed without needing wings or parachutes. Question. Describe the tissue of a potato and of a piece of rhubarb. Book studied Oliver's Elementary Botany. G. Aged 13. The tissue of rhubarb is very fibrous indeed. In fact, it is almost entirely made up of vessels. These are cells which have become tubes by the dividing cell wall being absorbed. These vessels are very beautiful when seen under a microscope, for their walls are all thickened in some way, in order to make them strong enough to bear the weight of the leaf. Some are thickened by a spiral cord which goes round and round the wall of the vessel. In some vessels, this is quite tightly twisted round the wall. That is to say, the rings do not come far apart. In others, it is quite loose and far apart. Another kind of thickening is by rings, which just go round the tube and are not joined to each other. Other vessels, again, have little knots in them, like what there are in birch bark. The potato tissue is mainly made up of starch, as it is one of the plant's storehouses, and starch is one of the plant's principal foods. Question. Give a diagram of the eye and explain how we see everything. Book studied. Dr. Schofield's Physiology for Schools. H. Aged 13. The eye can be likened to a camera, and the brain to the man behind the camera. The image enters at the hole, passes through the lens, is reflected on the plate, but the camera does not see. It is the man behind the camera who sees. In the same way, the image passes in at the pupil and through the lens, both sides of which are curved and can be tightened or slackened according to the distance of the image. Then the image passes along the nerve of sight to the two bulbs in the brain which see. 
if you hold a rounded glass between a sheet of paper and the image at the right distance for the glass cannot tighten or slacken like our lens you will see the image reflected upside down on the paper this is the way the lens acts there is a small yellow spot a little below the middle of the back of the eye here the sight is more acute and so though we can see lots of things at one time we can only look at one thing at a time there is a blind spot where the nerve enters the eye which shows that the nerve of sight itself is blind so that some part of every image is lost like a black dot punched in it but we are so used to it that we cannot see it question describe your favorite scene in waverley i aged twelve and a half a highland stag hunt the highland chiefs were in various postures some reclining lazily on their plaids others stalking up and down conversing with one another and a few were already seated in position for the sport MacIver was talking with another chief as to what the sport would be but as they talked in gaelic edward had no part in the conversation but sat looking at the scene before him they were seated on a low hill at the head of a broad valley which narrowed into a small opening or cleft in the hills at the extreme end it was hemmed in on all sides by hills of various heights it was through this opening that the beaters were to drive the deer already waverley could hear the distant shouts of the men calling to each other coming nearer and nearer soon he could distinguish the antlers of the deer moving towards the opening like a forest of trees stripped of their leaves the sportsmen prepared themselves to give them a warm reception and all were ready as the deer entered the valley they looked very ferocious as they advanced towards where edward and the chiefs were standing and seemed as if they were determined to fight the rows and weaker ones in the centre and the bulls standing as if on defence as soon as they came within range some of the chiefs fired and two or three deer came down waverley also had the good fortune and also the skill to bring down a couple and gain the applause of the other sportsmen but the herd was now charging furiously up the valley towards them the order was given to lie down as it was impossible to stem the coming wave of deer but as it was given in gaelic it conveyed no meaning to edward's mind and he remained standing the herd was now not fifty yards from him and in another minute he would have been trampled to death but MacIver at his own risk jumped up and literally dragged him to the ground just as the deer reached them edward had a sensation as if he was out in a severe hailstorm but this did not last long when they had passed and edward attempted to rise he found that besides a number of bruises he had also severely sprained his ankle and was unable to walk or even stand a shelter was soon made for him out of a plaid in which he was laid and then MacIver called the highland doctor or herbalist to attend him the doctor approached edward with every sign of humiliation but before attending to his ankle he insisted upon walking slowly round him several times in the direction in which the sun goes muttering 
at the same time a spell over him as he went and though waverley was in great pain he had to submit to his foolery waverley saw to his great astonishment that mac ivor believed or seemed to believe in the old man's cantations at last when he had finished his spells which he seemed to think more necessary than the dressing he drew from his pocket a little packet of herbs some of which he applied to the sprained ankle and after it had been bound up edward felt much relieved he rewarded the doctor with some money the value of which seemed to exceed his wildest imaginations for he heaped so many blessings upon the head of waverley that MacIver said a hundred thousand curses on you whereupon he stopped end of appendix two class three read by amy bodkin navarre florida